0: 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure, pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men, This stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, and a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, into its wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Sonia. Let's uh, ask God's help as we uh, think about the passage today. Heavenly Father, we thank you that as we begin a new sermon series, thinking about who we are as the church, that uh, you would not only instruct us, but encourage us uh, by this word from Peter, a passage that may be familiar to some of us and not so to others, that it would speak to us as your Holy Spirit comes, anoints your word, applies it to our lives, uh, so that we live differently as a result of this time together. Father, wherever we are in our journey of faith, may this be a significant time, not only today in our lives, but for this week, these months, these years that lie ahead. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. You say the word uh, church to family, friends, co-workers these days, and you're pretty sure to get a variety of responses. For some, it will be positive. I have to say that uh, for me, as far back as I can remember, church has been an extremely positive part of my life. Uh, But for some, the connotations of the word church are mostly, if not all, negative. There may be some of us here today for whom it's the first time in a very long time you've set foot in a church or watched online, and perhaps you have uh, reasons for that. For one thing, church services have always seemed boring to you. Robert Louis Stevenson, author of Treasure Island, amongst other things, once wrote in his diary, I have been to church today and I'm not depressed. The implication clearly being that that was an unusual occurrence in his life, that church usually led to being depressed. For others of us, church and Christianity, frankly, seem irrelevant. What relevance could a man who lived 2,000 years ago, some 5,000 miles away, have on my life today? Or maybe as you get older, sitting on a church pew for over an hour every Sunday doesn't really do it for you. Abraham Lincoln is reported to have said if all the people who fell asleep in church on Sunday were laid out end to end, they would be a great deal more comfortable. (laughs) And then for some of us, all jokes aside, we haven't set foot in church for years because of something that was said to us, something that was done to us, something that feels as fresh in our memory as if it happened just this past month. And those of us who consider ourselves part of the church do well to acknowledge that the church has brought much of this upon ourselves. Movements such as hashtag exvangelical, hashtag empty the pews have arisen because, to use a phrase that Jeremy used a few weeks ago, our orthodoxy of doctrine has not been matched by an orthodoxy of practice, with the result that people have been tragically, been the victims of abuse, and ignorance, and belittling, and have said, if this is what the Church is all about, thank you, no thank you. It's not unusual, therefore, to hear people say, you know, I love Jesus, but not the Church. And maybe for some of you, that's a comment that you can identify with. And for, you might be short, nothing short of a miracle, the fact that you're here this morning. If that's the case, I just want to say we appreciate you being here. The reality, however, is that church isn't difficult just for the people who have given up attending. It's difficult for those of us who do attend. Eugene Peterson wrote these words in his book, Practicing Resurrection. He said, Church is the textured context in which we grow up in Christ to maturity, but church is difficult. Sooner or later, though, if we are serious about growing up in Christ, we have to deal with church. Many Christians find church to be the most difficult aspect of being a Christian, and many drop out. There may be more Christians who don't go to church or who go only occasionally than who embrace it, warts and all, and there are plenty of warts. And so with that cheery start, you may be asking, why are any of us here this morning? Well, those of us who are part of this congregation i think could probably answer in many different ways but listen to this reason that john stott gives in his book the living church he says the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of god the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of god it is not a divine afterthought it's not an accident of history on the contrary the church is god's new community For his purpose, conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history and to be perfected in a future eternity, is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness, but rather to build his church, that is, to call out of the world a people for his own glory." So as we start this series, which we're calling This Is Us, uh, we're going to look at one of the places in the New Testament where John Stott probably got that understanding of the church as God's new community. Here in 1 Peter 2, the apostle Peter helps us see that as, as he describes for us the church in three ways, the church as living stones, the church as a new culture, and the church as unalienated aliens, Also, that we might understand how... The church is God's new community. So first, we as the church are living stones. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter gives this picture of us, the church, being living stones, being built into a spiritual house or a temple. And in Peter's day, that would have been an astounding statement to make. He was saying that the temple, that is the place where God comes and makes his dwelling place, now no longer is a physical edifice made of bricks and mortar, now the dwelling place of God is his people. If a child asks you, Mommy, daddy, auntie, uncle, grandma, grandpa, where does God live? The answer is not above the bright blue sky. The answer is God lives among his people. Peter wasn't saying here that now that we're out of the Old Testament, now there's no longer a temple. No, he says there is still a place where we can meet with God, experience the Spirit. But it's not done by laying brick upon brick upon brick. It's it's more laying Christian upon Christian upon Christian. That the Christian community, the church, is the temple. The dwelling place of God is his people. So how does Peter get to that assertion? How can we be the dwelling place of God, the temple? Well, the only reason that any of us can be the living stones in this temple is because we have come to the one who Peter calls the living stone. It's Jesus who defines This spiritual house he's the living stone rejected Peter writes by humans but chosen by God and precious to him And Peter points his readers back to the Old Testament to make his point here in verses 6 to 8 he says for it stands in Scripture behold I am laying in Zion a stone a cornerstone chosen and precious and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame so the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So through several Old Testament passages here, quotes, from Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, Isaiah 8, Peter explains that the living stone who was rejected is indeed the cornerstone of this living temple. In the physical temple, the cornerstone was the most crucial block in the foundations as it essentially defined the dimensions and the shape of the whole building. The irony, of course, is that Jesus became the cornerstone through his rejection. He came into this world to his people and they treated him as an enemy, as a stranger. His rejection reached its height with his execution by crucifixion. They crucified him. They killed him but in the eternal plan of God, Jesus' crucifixion was his coronation. And through his death, he defeated sin and death. And three days later, he rose again, the living stone. The stone the builders had rejected has become the cornerstone of a new temple, a new spiritual house. And Peter points out, quoting from these Old Testament passages, our eternal destiny depends on our relationship to this Jesus, the living stone, the cornerstone, that those who put their trust in him will never be put to shame, no condemnation ever. But those who don't believe, those who disobey the message, those who reject the cornerstone will stumble, which is a picture of falling into everlasting judgment and condemnation. To be a living stone is to come to the living stone, Jesus Christ. Now, one important implication of this comes if we sort of reverse that last sentence I said and and put it this way, that if you come to the living stone, you are then a living stone. In other words, if you trust in Jesus, you are by definition part of his church. People will say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I I don't do the church thing, or these days perhaps the in-person church thing, the idea being that when it comes to church, it's not compulsory. But if it helps some people get on in their Christian life, well, that's great for them. But Peter's telling us that if you trust in Jesus, you are a member of the church, whether you like it or not. You're you're a living stone being built into the structure of this spiritual house. If you trust in Jesus, you're, you're part of this spiritual house. If you trust in Jesus, you're part of the church already. What the 12 new members who were up at the front here did today was to recognize that being a living stone and a member of the church, capital C, is best expressed in an explicit commitment to the local church. I gently challenge those of us who are Christians and regular in attendance here but who haven't made a commitment through membership to this church to to reconsider your reasons why not. You're already part of the church, but throughout the New Testament, being part of the church, capital C, always translates into a covenanted relationship with a local church. The being connected to the living church puts you in connection with other living stones. This connection between the living stone and us as living stones helps us actually better understand the nature of our relationship with each other and fellowship with one another Because his temple, Peter says, isn't built with bricks, it's built with stones. Stones, of course, come in all shapes and sizes and colors. They're hewn out of a quarry with all kinds of rough rough edges. The skill of the master builder is to fit them all together so that each one finds its special place within the building. Those of you who've been to the UK or to Ireland will, I'm sure, have seen these dry stone walls that are all over those islands. There's, There's no mortar. And yet many of these walls have stood for centuries. The walls are simply stones of all shapes and sizes. The fact is that you can't build a dry stone wall from one shape or size of stone. It's impossible. The strength of the wall depends rather on the placing and the shaping of each individual unique rock. And so it is that God shapes our lives in community around each other as different as we each are in so many ways, but that makes us all the stronger as a church, stones above you and stones below you as the master builder fits them together and makes his dwelling in us. This idea of being living stones, supported by stones below you, supporting the stones above you, too reminded me of the the picture that C.S. Lewis gives in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe of our interdependence in, in the church after aslan the lion who's the christ figure in the narnia stories has been resurrected he he bends down to the two girls susan and lucy and says and now to business we have a long journey and you must ride on me lewis goes on and writes this he crouched down and the children climbed onto his warm golden back, and Susan sat first, holding on tightly to his mane, and Lucy sat behind, holding tightly to Susan. And with a great heave, he rose underneath them and shot off faster than any horse could go, End quote. And with those words, I think intentionally, Lewis gives us a picture of the church and how we relate to each other as we relate to the Lord Jesus. Because Susan, of all the children in the book, is the spiritually weak one. She can actually be quite cruel to to Lucy and never seems to quite get it. But Lucy, she's the one with the deepest spiritual insight, the one with the, the best relationship with Aslan. But you see what Lewis does here? He puts Lucy on Aslan's back and the only way she can hold on to Aslan is to hold on to Susan. And that's what being built together looks like, to hold on to Jesus You have to hold on to Susan, that is to other Christians who don't see things the way you see things, and who, frankly, you may not even like that much. Lucy's the one you would say deserves to get on Aslan's back. She would get up there, hold on to the main, say, I don't need anybody else. I certainly don't need Susan. But the God who builds his church doesn't work like that. He says, the only way you can hold on to me is if you hold on to the Susans of the church. God builds the temple around the cornerstone of of Jesus, but as the living stones, we exercise an interdependence in this spiritual house with each other. One last thing on living stones. Did you notice what our purpose is in being living stones? Look again at verse 5. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So the church no longer has a priesthood in the sense of a select group set apart to come before God on behalf of the rest of us. That's not my role, Jeremy's role here. No, the church is a priesthood. We all offer worship to God. Or in Peter's words, we offer up spiritual sacrifices. I wonder what you think Peter means by that phrase, spiritual sacrifices. You know, is that kind of thing you think that's what we do when we come here on a Sunday morning and we gather together. Interestingly, for what, uh, if you could do a search in the New Testament for what sacrifices we are to make as Christians, it has to do with how we live our lives 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Romans 12, it has to do with what we do with our bodies, that with our whole selves. Hebrews 13, you may remember from a few months ago, has to do with what comes out of our lips and how we should be constantly doing good for others. So the spiritual sacrifices or the worship we offer as the church is what we do 24-7 with our lives. But if our worship then is 24-7, then why do we come to church? Well, it's obviously also to worship God, but it's more than that, because while there's obviously a Godward focus on Sunday mornings here in church, because there's a Godward focus of all of our lives all the time, the New Testament presents more of a picture of us gathering together as Christians on Sundays in a sense to strengthen the walls of living stones, to build one another up, to love one another well, to encourage one another. And you can only do that when you come together in person, That kind of love and encouragement needs to be what happens here on Sunday mornings, needs to be what happens in our growth groups, in our one-to-ones, so that we continue to be living stones who trust in the living stone. But secondly, look at this. As God forms us into this temple, into his dwelling place, he at the same time is shaping us, the church, into a new culture, a counterculture that is a, a light to the cultures around us. Look at verses 9 to 10 again. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is drawing again here from the Old Testament. That last sentence comes from the the prophet Hosea. But the titles in verse 9 come right out of Exodus 19. These were the titles that were given to the people of Israel right before the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. But now, Peter says, these titles belong unequivocally, unashamedly, and unreservedly to the Christian church. He's not saying that the church has replaced the people of Israel. Rather, Gentiles, he says, have been grafted in with Jews who trust in Jesus the Messiah to form this glorious new community, the church These are all rich, wonderful titles that if we had more time, would each warrant much deeper reflection. But just as a taster, just think what it means that we are people for God's own possession. The God of the universe who owns absolutely everything has something that he prizes more than anything else. It's his church. It's you and me. If God had a refrigerator, which I'm pretty sure he doesn't, but if he did, you can bet that our picture would be right there front and center. If he had a wallet, our picture would be in it. He'd be bringing it out all the time to show people. Because as God's people, we are his treasured special possession. However, if you take all those titles together here, they portray a people who are not a mere club with a particular hobby or interest that brings them together. No, the people of God, the church, is a a new culture. It's a counterculture. So that to become a Christian isn't just about giving you some inner peace in the midst of the stresses and the anxieties of your life. Becoming a Christian is changing your culture. Because the gospel affects everything in your life. It basically changes everything. It's not just about the making of individual converts. It's about the calling of a people, a holy nation. So how does that happen? Well, how do we develop and maintain an identity as a a new culture, a counterculture? Well, the principal way that the the leaders of the early church achieved that was by kind of doing what we do today. It's by discipling its members, teaching and modeling to the members that the call of the gospel is a call to embrace a a new way of life. So as one church historian put it, The early church was less interested in transforming the disorders of the Roman Empire than in building, quote, its own sense of community and letting these communities be the leaven that would gradually transform culture. The church was not a body that spoke to its culture. It was itself a culture and created a new Christian culture. And it's that conviction that we are a counterculture that is behind what we do is we participate together on a Sunday morning. Because the worship service from beginning to end is intended to reshape what we love and to recalibrate what we ultimately set our hearts on and to change our vision of the good life to that which God portrays in scripture and not what the surrounding world and culture is telling us. Because we're not a mere club. God has called us a chosen people a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. We're a new community, a new culture. And as God shapes us into that new culture, what are we to do? Peter says we're to proclaim the excellencies or praises of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. We're we're a model home. Here in Kennet Square, this, this demonstration community to our neighbors to show or try to show to the world the beauty of the gospel the truth of the gospel, the splendor of Jesus, our cornerstone, and the stunning grace of God. But lastly, it's important to understand that as a a new culture, the church is not to be a subculture that fails to engage with the culture around it. And Peter makes that clear in this last section, verses 11 to 12, where he instructs us as the church to be what we might call unalienated aliens. Look at those verses. Dear friends, I urge you as resident aliens and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Do you hear what Peter is saying here? Here's here's the dynamic of the Christian life. That you and I are to live such exemplary grace-filled, godly, service-centered lives, that even though non-Christians may pick on us, may falsely accuse us of wrongdoing, may lambast us, in the end they will either glorify God by seeing our deeds and coming to faith, or they'll glorify God on the day of judgment when they recognize and confess that the Bible was right and they were wrong. But all of that comes out of us living out our new identity, the one Peter already mentioned at the beginning of the letter where he calls us elect exiles. Peter was writing this letter to Christians spread throughout Asia Minor who weren't just passing through this world briefly and so had no leather in the game. But neither was he writing to them as merely citizens of this world, no, he says, your exiles, resident aliens, people who are to be committed to the place in which they live, but whose true citizenship and value reside somewhere else. When you think about it for a moment. You realize how appropriate it is that Peter would call Christians resident aliens, that we're resident aliens. We're resident in the sense that we... We know this place is not our home, but while we're here, we're committed to its flourishing, we're committed to its prosperity. But at the same time, we're aliens here. So we're not to be assimilated into this culture, into this country, into any culture in the country in the world. That as the church, we're a brand new culture. We're to handle money and sex and power in distinct ways. Everything is to be done on a, on a different basis, business practices. Male female relationships, family life, political perspectives, how we spend our money. As aliens, we already have a message that will offend many people that if they do not come to Jesus, the living stone, they will suffer eternal separation from the God who made them. But we do everything we can not to add to that offense by our failure to love or to listen. Or to serve. That's the tension we live with as unalienated aliens. So we're not sectarian in the sense that we withdraw from the world into a little Christian ghetto, but neither are we chameleons where we just look like the world around us. Now, just as God told the exiles in Babylon in the Old Testament through Peter, God is, is saying to us as Christians, I don't want you to stay out and be different. And I don't want you to go in and become just like them. I want you to go deeply in, but stay very different. Let me say that again. I don't want you to stay out and be different, sectarian. I don't want you to go in and become like them, chameleons. I want you to go in deeply, but stay very different. That's what Peter's talking about here. Because as Christians, we're resident aliens, we're exiles, so we seek the welfare of the towns and cities in which we live. We need to care about that. We need to follow in the footsteps of the one who served his enemies and who forgave his enemies and who died for his enemies, that as exiles, as resident aliens were to be distinct from the world, but for the world. Some of you may have noticed that on the sign outside, just to the left of the front door, on the frame of the sign are the words Kennett Square Presbyterian Church. But quite a few years ago now, we put the words underneath, meets here. Kennett Square Presbyterian Church meets here. I'm under very few illusions that many people ever pay any attention to that. But it's intended to at least remind us that this building isn't the church. The stones that were used many, many years ago to construct this edifice don't make this church. The church is made up of you and me, of living stones. It's us. This is us. The Kennett Square Presbyterian Church meets here to build one another up in the gospel, to encourage one another in the faith, to help one another taste and see that the Lord is good. And then we scatter out to our various and respective communities and neighborhoods and schools and workplaces, still Kenneth Square Presbyterian Church, but in all these different locations now, proclaiming God's excellencies to the world around us. We're a new culture. We're resident aliens. We're distinct from the world for the world. We're God's new community. That's us. This is us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for its reminder of our identity. We thank you for all that you have done to make us who we are. We thank you as the quote from John Stott reminded us that the church lies at the very center of your eternal purposes. And Lord, we pray that we would be who we are, that we would live as how you have called us, that we would hear this as a clarion call to us to to be different, not just individually, but as a culture, as a community, as a family. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God, the one who came into this world so that we might live, so that we might be living stones. Help us to live that life for you and empowered by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.